Hello, thinkers, readers, and tea drinkers, and welcome to Speaking with Joy. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Clarkson, and this is a podcast dedicated to art, literature, theology, and good conversations. It is my hope to create an hour of sanity, fascination, and beauty in our hectic and cynical world. So make yourself a cup of tea, and let's dive in. She did not cry, I cannot, I am not worthy, nor I have not the strength. She did not submit with gritted teeth, raging coerced. Bravest of all humans, consent illumined her, the room filled with its light. Hello everybody and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. This is my second podcast back after a long hiatus in which As you will have heard if you listened to the previous podcast, I um, have had quite a full last few months finishing the PhD, uh, starting up a job, and and resettling life um, post-PhD. So I'm excited to be back with you all. As I mentioned last week, the new plan is to post two episodes a week. We'll see how long I keep up with that. Um, And I am always tempted to do a whole series of Advent podcasts. Um, But... I have lots of kind of backlogged episodes that I've recorded, so I'm, I'm going to just do this one episode on Advent and then continue to start posting some of the other episodes that I've recorded ahead of time. But I couldn't keep myself from doing at least one episode thinking about some of the art and history and beauty surrounding the season of Advent. So today I'm going to, like my old classic podcast, share a piece of visual, musical, and literary art with you surrounding a theme. And that theme will today be specifically Advent. Um, I'll be looking at the Annunciation in my visual and poetry piece, a bit of which I just quoted to you from Denise Levertov. And then we'll be having a lovely conversation with my musician brother, Joel Clarkson, about Advent hymns and carols. Now, for those of you who may not know kind of the history behind Advent, um, it's the season preceding Christmas. So technically Christmas doesn't really begin in the liturgical year um, until until Christmas Day itself. So I realize I've just said a whole bunch of words, which to some people will make a lot of sense and others will not. So the liturgical year, I'll start with that. There's kind of been seasons since the beginning of the Christian calendar, um, dating way back to the early centuries of Christianity, where you kind of had dedicated times in the years to celebrate specific moments of Christian history. So most of us know some of these, right? We know Easter is the is the season of the resurrection. Um, we know Christmas is the season of the incarnation. So we think about, at, at Christmas, we think about Christ coming into the world in nativity. But there's also lots of other little seasons in here. And right now we're in Advent, which is kind of the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, in which we are we are anticipating the coming of Christ. Advent literally means... Um, the coming. So when we say the advent of technology, we mean the arrival, the sudden kind of um, the arrival, the coming of technology, if I were to use that phrase. So advent is a season in which we kind of sit with and ponder uh, the coming of Christ. And that means kind of in different things. I'll talk with Joel about how uh, traditionally we thought about the coming of advent as celebrating three comings, the coming of Christ into the world, 
uh, at the Nativity and the Incarnation, the coming of Christ into our hearts every day, and the anticipation of the Second Coming. Um, I love this season, uh, and I think the reason I love it is because it's a season that kind of baptizes discontent. It's a season that acknowledges longing and um, unresolved desires as something that belongs in the Christian story. Um, and, and I think I've always felt that because I look when I look at the world, I think it's very evident to us, it's very apparent to us that all is not as it should be. And whether that's on kind of a global scale of the world uh, at large and, and all the pain and the brokenness and the conflict and the injustice that we see, or even just in our own lives, um, in the unfinished business that we carry with us, in the desires for for things in our lives that haven't been fulfilled, um, there is this there is this this tension in in the world between knowing that life is good and it's good to be alive and it's it's good to enjoy life, but also knowing that life is not as it should be, and that we all live with this kind of pang of desire, sometimes more or less um, felt, and and I think desire unmet it's like it's like a hunger right when we look at the world and we want it to be just it kind of creates this pain in us and i think oftentimes i have felt like that pain was somehow wrong that it was wrong to be unsatisfied that it was that it was somehow kind of guilty or it was me not being grateful but advent testifies to the fact that we have a longing um, and that we should actually lean into that longing, that we should lean into the sense of things not being quite as they should be, so that we can long for and see and, and hope to see the coming to pass of, of things that, that will be good. Um, right now I've been listening through, there's lots of different Advent kind of resources I would recommend, but one of them is the Biola um, Advent Project. And they do, I was actually, they were one of the early inspirations for this podcast. They talk about, they have like this, they have a piece of poetry, uh, a piece of scripture, a piece of music, and a piece of visual art that you, they send to your inbox every day. And uh, I was struck by the one they're doing right now, the canticles, which are the kind of songs that are in scripture. And one of those is by Zechariah, who um, is the priest who sees Jesus in the temple. And he, when he sees him, he, he has this... Um, this canticle, this song that's been sung in many evening prayers for years. Uh, and by years, I mean literally most of the church, the existence of the church. And he says, um, Lord, lettest thou now thy servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And there's this sense that he has been waiting, longing for, hoping for, looking for something his whole life that he sees in Jesus that that's fulfilled. And there's something so beautiful to me about this idea that he has sat with this unfulfilled desire for his whole life um, and, and that he hasn't gotten rid of it. There's many reasons we get rid of desires. I think for me, it's mainly kind of self-protective. Um, if we don't admit that we have a desire, then we don't have to admit that we're disappointed when it's not fulfilled. Um, but if Zachariah had given up on that desire to see the salvation of the Lord, he couldn't have rejoiced so much in, in that fulfillment of that desire. And so being a naturally discontented uh, person full of desires who doesn't always know how to cope with them, who doesn't like feeling deprived or in pain, 
I love Advent because it tells me what's true about the world, which is that things are not as they are, and there's a great relief in someone saying out loud, but also that we have a great reason to hope, and that a life lived leaning into this kind of desire is a life that's actually more in touch with the goodness that thrums beneath the, the well of things. So I, I love Advent. Um, it is a dear season to me. And I wanted to give you a few things to ponder on. One of the things around Advent, so Advent's been, probably if you grew up in a more liturgical tradition, like, I don't know, Anglicanism, Roman Catholicism, um, any of the more, probably even, you know, Presbyterianism to some extent, there, there's a celebration of Advent, but some of us didn't grow up with it. So it can be kind of overwhelming to know what we do with this season. How do we uh, celebrate it? And there's lots of wonderful resources like the Biola Advent Project, like Malcolm Geith's collection of poetry um, called Waiting on the Word. Uh, but they can also be kind of overwhelming because I am a person of good intentions and I do like rhythms. So I have kind of my my prayer things that I have every day. But it can become overwhelming trying to do a whole devotion every single day and then you end up with six different kinds of them uh, over over the period of Advent. So what I've actually been doing this um, this year is meditating on uh, several, just like three, one image and one poem, really. And so I'm, I'm excited to share those with you today and tell you a little bit about them. And, um, and I would encourage you to dwell on them as well, if that would be helpful to you. Because to me, in a season that's been hugely um, uh, full of change and chaos for me, there's something uh, deep and comforting and doable about meditating on one passage, one poem, one image. So I'm excited to share that with you. But first, I'm going to share an interview I did with my brother Joel a few days ago about his collection of Advent and Christmas carols and hymns, uh, which you should definitely go listen to. They're called Midwinter Carols, Volumes 1 and 2, and they are just lovely and I look forward to playing them every year. So first, some reminiscence and some discussion of uh, Advent carols and hymns with my brother, and then I'll end this podcast telling you about the poem and the image that have captured my uh, imagination this year. And that is The Annunciation by Denise Levertov is the poem, and The Annunciation, the image by Henry Asawa Tanner. Hi everybody, you find me at my kitchen table in my new flat with my lovely brother, Joel Clarkson. And we're going to talk about, I had a hard time encapsulating this because we were trying to decide between Advent, Epiphany, and Christmas carols, hymns, music, etc. So we're gonna talk about all three and especially Joel's lovely Midwinter Carols, which is his collection of instrumental music on these three seasons. Indeed. Joel has been on the show many times, but um, why don't you give a brief introduction to yourself nonetheless? Well, the most important thing that you need to know is that I am Joy's brother, and <laughs> this is this is an exciting fact for me. And um, not my husband, one might add. Indeed, yes, it's been a, a party a party fact that we have shared <laughs> quite a bit. Um, I am a composer. Uh, I am also completing and drawing near to the end of my doctorate in theology and the arts, the same program that uh, Joy, Doctor Joy, has just finished in, <laughs> and um, I'm doing a thesis on sacred music. 
Mm. So that's kind of a bit of a, a very, very small scope of kind of what's in my life. Well, and the part of that that you, of course, didn't mention is that you're doing this this doctoral research on sacred music, but you were also a composer yourself, and that was right. kind of your your first and ongoing career. Indeed, yeah. So I've composed various sorts of music. I started out in film and TV and did a little bit of concert music. I did some conducting and some orchestration uh, as well as kind of part of that work. And uh, I gradually became interested in sacred music uh, for various reasons over the beginning years of my career, uh, to the extent that I started asking questions about the theology behind the music. Because it's such a living theology, you know, when you have sacred music, and especially when you start experiencing it in the church and seeing it in worship, you do start asking questions about it for yourself, about what is this doing to us, and why do we use certain styles and not other styles, or, you know, what, what does work and what doesn't work, and... And what does it mean for us to be singing a song to the Lord? And so all these questions came to fruition in my uh, postgraduate studies, which started as a master's and now has ended up as a doctorate. So Joel is that rare breed who is in the ivory tower, but is singing from his ivory tower. So you're both doing the work that you write about and you're writing about it. And I think that this question is particularly pertinent when it comes to Christmas, because mm. We all have our, our little Advent and Christmas rituals. Um, you know, we have the actual ones like Advent, going to church, having these, these weeks to prepare for Christmas. But there's also the less formal and in some ways even more formative to me kind of rituals of getting the house ready for Christmas, putting up a tree. And for me, one of the first things that indicates the, the shift in season is kind of beginning to listen to in a, in a very... Um, excited fashion, my favorite music that is combined just to this time of year. And uh, what's fun is that for many people, uh, that experience of being like, oh, I'm going to return to this album that I only listen to during this period of the year is actually your music itself. There's something about the music that kind of gets us into, um, into the season itself. Now, of course, many people get a bit uh, touchy because technically we're not in Christmas yet, right? So we're not meant to have Christmas music. Uh, but that's something that not all traditions uh, are aware of or know something about. So, um, And I think there are some people who, who understandably flout. just, it, it's too, especially in a year like this, we all need as much I, as we I am have. a flouter. I am, I am, I am happily and, and, and freely listening to Christmas music prior to Christmas. <laughs> um, I've been listening to Yo-Yo Ma and Alison Krauss um, doing the Wexford Carol and Pentatonics and... Amy Grant's old Christmas music and Michael W. Smith. Oh, there's so many ones. And, um, but of course yours as well. So tell us a bit about uh, your two albums of Christmas music. Yeah, so it started, I think really, before I even sort of conceived the idea of having a Christmas album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, you know, I've, I've done a lot of piano instrumental albums and I do like that format. And so I think I always sort of assumed I might go that route. But uh, I... I think before I even got sort of conceiving of what the album would be, I, I had this feeling in my head about listening to Christmas music that I like uh, these older style carols, mm. the, the more ancient practice and tradition of mm. carols. We've got a lot of contemporary music that uh, is perfectly fine, you know, and mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, the rock around the Christmas tree and mm-hmm. deck the halls. We all know these tunes and we're all familiar with them and we love them. Uh, jingle bells, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I enjoy those too, mm. but. You know, to enter into the, the the real sense of what the season is about, to enter into how Advent prepares us to look for the coming of Christ, how mm. Christmas prepares us to celebrate the incarnation and the presence of Christ, and how Epiphany, you know, celebrates the, the coming of the wise men and this, this beautiful moment. 
all of those sorts of things need a certain kind of of gravitas, mm. uh, and that's what this tr uh, tradition of carols has. Mm. And uh, for me, I wanted to take even a further step beyond that, which is to say that uh, there's a lot of carols we know that are very quintessential and are very beautiful, and I play them every every Christmas, and I love them. You know, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and um, you know, Silent Night, mm. uh, essential carols that we all know. But there are a lot of carols, especially carols that are associated with a particular culture in Europe. So. Mm. Basque culture or mm. Austrian culture or English culture that are a little bit less Celtic. well known. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I wanted to kind of collect some of those carols in particular mm. and do settings of them. And I also had, as sort of a stylistic pathway into that process, I had in mind uh, listening to George Winston, and mm. George Winston, especially George Winston's December in particular, which mm. we grew up on listening to every December. Mm -hmm. And and I, and I think there's something wonderful in the sense that it's it's it is. It gives you this full scope of it's mm. December. It's not just Christmas. It's December, you know, mm -hmm. which covers Advent and Christmas. And and uh, many of these carols do. Uh, some of them are Advent carols. Some of them are Christmas carols. So mm. there's kind of a there's an interchange between that. Mm. I love that. Yes, and that's the great thing about um, George Winston. Is that his name? Mm -hmm. And your album is you can kind of listen to it in that long, you can call it the long December. You know, they call it the mm -hmm, long mm -hmm. 15th, 16th century. It's the yes. long December that you can listen to from Advent into Epiphany. And something else that I appreciate is I realize that some of the carols I find to be most beautiful and most haunting, some of those older medieval carols just have beautiful melodies, but it's actually hard to find um, good versions of them online. Mm. So um, this is not a Celtic one, but I was thinking of, um, I was tweeting the other day about Lo, He Comes With Clouds Descending, mm -hmm. and someone hadn't listened to it, and so they said, well, can you send me one? And mm. of course they have like, there's, um, you know, the King's College Choir has a good one. Right. But besides that, it's hard sometimes to find actual really beautiful settings or recordings of some of the more traditional carols yeah. um, that actually kind of reflect the gravitas and the beauty of them. Yes. Um, especially those more kind of Celtic or Basque mm. or all those. Yeah. So, um, so Which no, would have been, I mean, for all intents and purposes, very simple. Mm -hmm. Because they would have been sung in homes. Mm -hmm. They would have been sung in, in, in churches to a certain extent as well. But many of them, perhaps most of them, would have been shared outside of the church mm. uh, during the long, cold, dark hours in which you're just sort mm -hmm. of trying to bear up the, the terribleness of winter and, and find warmth and happiness and joy in the lyrics of the song you sing with your family. <laughs> I found that that made a lot more, like, that made a lot more sense to me once we lived in Scotland. Yes. I used to say that I think a lot of Scottish culture is, is oriented around staying warm in the winter. So oh, yeah. you, you drink whiskey, you, you stomp around and do wild dances to keep yourself warm. Yes. It's but also just in the long hours, you sing songs and yes. you sing songs that remind you of what is most important, mm. uh, and uh, the Christmas story being, of course, one of those yes. things. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you about something I didn't tell I was going to ask you about, but I know you will have something to say about it. Mm -hmm. um, on the very first album, the very first song, the very first album, is Of the Father's Love Begotten, right? Mm. Yes. Uh, and that's a very ancient hymn, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so, Isn't yes. it? So, so that's one of the things I also appreciate, is that you do some... So we're, I'm going to ask you about that one, and then about the most classic Advent hymn, which is the O Come, o Come Emmanuel. Yes. Um, but oh, of the Father's love begotten, isn't that, it's in the first few centuries of the church, right? That would be, it's Latin, it's originally Latin, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was Prudentius, actually, who wrote it, mm -hmm. uh, or is, is uh, suggested to have written it. And so, yeah, that would have been, um, when would Prudentius have been? 
He would have been, I think he was fourth century. Yeah, yeah so very, very early on. Mm. The melody might have come from later, but it may not have. I mean, it may have been, uh, it's, it's a chant melody, actually. Mm. It would have been sung to chant uh, notation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and it would have been sung in Latin originally, but in, it's of yeah. course translated into English. Perhaps. But again, with that kind of ancient bit, it's fun to know that some of these songs go back very, very old. Yeah. Now, okay, so you say it has these three seasons in the album. Mm-hmm. Also, I should say that you do these ancient hymns and carols, but you also, you have your training from Berklee School of Music. Yes. So especially the second album it has some really kind of cool, I'm going to use the wrong words to describe this, but jazz, new agey, like well, like interesting compositionally. Yes. Um, you, you did some, some meshing of that into a more modern, um, what was yes. your, what's one of your favorite songs on the new album? I think one of my, just a couple that I would, I would mention, um, I really enjoyed doing the second album a lot because it got to push even further into mm-hmm. this whole sort of, um, these carols from different corners. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had a lot of French carols in that album. Mm-hmm. So he is born the divine Christ child, uh, and, um, uh, uh, bring a torch Jeanette Isabella mm. and, uh, sing me now Christmas. Mm. Uh, each of these are originally French carols. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, the angel Gabriel mm-hmm. is a Basque carol actually. Mm. Is it? It is. So it's, it's, I it's, love that melody. That's so gorgeous. Yeah. So it's very, um, it's, it's uh, not sort of purely metrical, and mm-hmm. that's part of the beauty of it, of course, is that it sort of has this strange lilt. And it's, I think theologically it works well because, mm-hmm. in a sense, that's what's happening to Mary, isn't it? Is that mm-hmm. she's receiving from the angel Gabriel this, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a uh, this, carol for the Annunciation. It's and, kind of this disruptive. Yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. And you have a very cool, that, that's the one that feels the most kind of yeah. compositionally... Yes. I know. Gershwin-y? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's, there's certainly jazz elements. I can't help but um, integrate on some level a little bit of my jazz training from Berkeley. I'm not much of a jazzer, mm-hmm. um, but the, the little that I was able to gain during my time, I think I probably enjoy jazz harmony more than even tonal harmony. And that's saying a lot because I love classical tonal mm-hmm. harmony. I love writing classical music, but mm-hmm. um, but there's something so bright and effervescent and mm-hmm. sort of energetic about jazz. It's more open and... and mm-hmm. um, intuitive as mm, it were mm. and that was helpful for me in writing some of these tunes because even in just little ways mm. even just little you know ornamentations and that sort of thing i think it just brings something out of the music mm, absolutely okay so i started saying this and then i had to talk about those three hymns or those three carols so you have these kind of three um seasons that we have in the church here mm-hmm. combined in this album we uh you have advent christmas and then epiphany and right now we are in advent mm-hmm in this podcast before our conversation is is going into talking about Advent as this season of waiting and a kind of holy desire. Mm-hmm. And um, and there are, so traditionally you're not supposed to sing Christmas carols until Christmas, right. even right. you sing Advent carols yeah, that's right. or Advent hymns. And one of the most famous of those, which you have on the album, is... Oh, come on, come Emmanuel. Yes. And the reason that's Advent rather than Christmas is because there's this sense of inviting Christ to mm-hmm. come, right? It's yeah. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, so tell us a bit about the history of this, uh, the history and the kind of content of this Advent carol and why it matters. Yeah. So it's my understanding, uh, the, the hymn that we know as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, mm-hmm. sort of the harmony and the melody and that sort of thing, is actually a little more recent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably within the last, I 
think I want to say that, well, there's a version. I mean, the most current version of it is 19th century. Mm-hmm. I think that there's um, an, a, an earlier adaptation uh, from the 16th century. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, both the tune and the, um, the the words themselves are actually drawn from a set of antiphons mm-hmm. for vespers for the last uh, I think it's the seven vespers of um, Advent. Vespers being evening prayer. Yeah. So this is so getting to this point of, of talking about vespers is important because. Vespers as evening prayer is is the end of the day, mm. and Advent is all about the end of the day, mm. not the end of the actual day, mm. the end of the day of history, the mm. end of the day of uh, the old covenant, the yeah, end of the day yeah. of yeah. and the beginning of the new, and the expectation of the end of the world and the beginning of the next. Mm. So there's there's this importance then to Vespers during mm. Advent, and so it's not surprising then that these these O antiphons as they're mm-hmm. called. Because it's O come, O come Emmanuel, O right. come, yeah. So O come, O come Emmanuel is actually a collection of all the O antiphons, mm-hmm. uh, slightly altered mm-hmm. to sort of fit within the, the scope. But it's it, I'm going to forget all of them, but it includes things like the O Orions, which mm-hmm. is O, o come, light. Uh, dawn, mm-hmm. yeah, O radiant dawn, uh, O uh, key of David, key of David, um, uh, root of Jesse, mm-hmm. and all each the, of these, which are all these scriptural, yeah, O sapientia, which is O wisdom. wisdom. Uh, each of these has a theme that sort of describes a divine characteristic that is then tied into who Christ is. And that's from scripture. So all yeah, of those exactly. words, you know, the the root of, Je- is it the root of Jesse? Yeah. The key of David, yeah. the, um, oh, wisdom from on high. All yeah. of those are referencing. So wisdom is referencing Proverbs 8, where it talks about exactly. wisdom, looking at, you know, creation and, and root of Jesse being from Isaiah. So well, it's... The key of David actually is interesting because key of David is a reference to the Hebrew Bible, but it's also a reference to the cross because mm. the cross is the key of David. It's the key through which Christ opens up the kingdom to mm. all, basically. So it's this beautiful scriptural meditation, really. And yeah. it's meant you're meant to have one of them on each day, right? So we That's sing right. them all together, but it was meant to be, and an antiphon is something that, um, you know, in monasteries, prayers are usually sung rather yeah. than just said. And so yeah. an antiphon is something that goes from me to you. So I we right, go back right. and forth. And so, and and... Interestingly enough, um, this will help you understand sort of the, for those of you who may not be familiar with this, uh, it's also sort of attuned as Vespers to the fact that the closer you get to Christmas, the darker it gets, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you get to December 21st, which is the darkest uh, uh, darkest night of the year, and the Vespers for December 21st, the the antiphon for December 21st, Mm. is... um, It's uh, it's the O Orients, thank you, which Mm -hmm. is the O Radiant Dawn... Uh, and it's it's expressing that the light of Christ breaks into the darkness of the world in the darkest day at the darkest moment of the entire year, the shortest day mm. of the entire year, and that then sort of looks very quickly onward to mm. Christmas, mm. which is coming only four days later, and so you have these six antiphons moving very very precipitously toward toward this final moment of Christmas. So mm. uh, it's it feels like it, it what basically is happening is that even though it, everything's getting dark to us, the music is telling us a different story. And even as the music itself is being sung at the setting of the sun, as, as everything's yeah. getting dark. Another fun fun fact is that the, um, the it's the six, is it six, no, it's seven, uh, seven O antiphons. The, begin, yes. the first word of each one, or, or the, the title for Christ, um, comes is, up as an acrostic. Yes, this so, is... Some people say this is speculative, but I think it's fair. Oh, to, I think it's fair. Yeah. yeah, I think it is. So the uh, the acrostic in Latin is I'm going to say this wrong because I'm not a Latinist, but it's Aerocras <laughs> or Aerocras. That's I think that's about which right. means tomorrow I will be there. 
So there's this sense that it's um, anticipating Christ's coming. Yeah. And um, the way that I'd also heard this explained, and I think this might have been Briar of Clairvaux or, or one of those ancient interesting people, maybe medieval, is that there's um, in Advent, um, we are celebrating three comings of Christ. The coming of Christ into the world and the incarnation. Mm-hmm. The coming of Christ each day into our own hearts, mm-hmm. and then anticipating the coming of Christ at the end of time. At the end of time. Yeah. And so, when you have tomorrow, I will be there. It's kind of this sense of all three of those. All three of those that the tomorrow, you know, when you're when you're singing on Christmas Eve, tomorrow he will be there in the in the manger, but tomorrow he will also be there awaiting you in your life to be with you and to be in your heart. But also the sense that as Christians we. Um, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, that we're anticipating this, this final coming. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and so, and interestingly enough, um, so to, to that end, I should say, I decided to, to sort of bookend my mm. album with, mm. with, um, with that sense of, mm. of Advent, because even though we always eventually get to Christmas in our liturgical year. So we get past Advent and we get to Christmas. We will eventually come back to Advent again because mm-hmm. for as long as we are on this mortal coil, <laughs> we are continually standing between mm. Christmas and Advent. Mm. And so it's not a wrong sentiment, I think, to mm. go even through these Christmas carols that are especially mm. in the second album, uh, in which mm. I have O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that we start with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and we return to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel because even in Christmas we still say O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And tomorrow he will be here. Yeah. Yeah. So, in case you didn't catch this, the second album begins and ends with O Come, O Come, That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I just love how much richness there is packed into that one simple song that we that we all yeah. sing every year. Yeah. Ah, oh, so Joel, where can people find this wonderful music of yours, of yes. which I will do some small samples? <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, the the easiest way to do it is if you have Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, anywhere that you stream music or purchase it online, iTunes. Uh, wherever it is that you source your music digitally, uh, I should you should I should be present there. You should be able to find my music there, um, and so just search for Midwinter Carols, and that should bring up both the first and the second albums. So there's a volume one and a volume two, and I should say because I know you get emails about this a lot that you used to do physical albums, but that it was living overseas. It was neither cost effective nor practical yeah. to be able to send. So yes. unfortunately, there are no longer. No, and unfortunately, this is actually not even just an overseas thing. Uh, we are quickly moving to a point where it's difficult to uh, find people who can produce CDs for you uh, on an easy an, an, on an easy level. But um, but I do uh, always love hearing people uh, tell me that they're enjoying my music, and I I hope that in the minute there's one way out there that will work best for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and I always love hearing from you. So please let me know if you're enjoying the music. Yes, and do, because artists want to know that people enjoy it. <laughs> well, Joel, thank you, and thank you for creating such beautiful music for me to ritualistically enjoy every December. It's a pleasure. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that little interlude with Joel. Um, I always enjoy discussing things with him, and I was laughing as I was listening back through that audio because we were definitely finishing each other's sentences, which is what comes, I think, of having lived together uh, during a lockdown for nearly two years straight. Uh, You begin to have sibling-connected synapses. Um, So I do hope you'll go listen to his wonderful album. Um, It really is beautiful, and I look forward to listening to it every year. 
And now I'm excited to share with you the poem and the image that are kind of my points of meditation uh, this year for Advent. Both of them are inspired by the same moment in scripture. So actually, before I dive into discussing these works of art, I want to begin by reading the passage that they come from. So both of these works of art, the poem and the image, have the same title, which is Annunciation or The Annunciation, which refers, of course, to the moment when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary in Luke 1, 26 through 38. So we're going to read that passage together, discuss a little bit, and then we'll look at the two pieces of art. So the Annunciation is Luke 1, 26 through 38, and goes like this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, is in, in her old age, has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it, me, let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So this is one of the most significant and depicted and meditated upon uh, passages in all of scripture. And that's because this is kind of the first moment, the first movements of God's startling plan, the, the crazy story of Christianity, that God became a human, that he, that in the incarnation, the incarnation means, you know, the putting on flesh, carnation, carnal, that God would come and enter into this broken world. And the location of that beginning is here with Mary. And there's so much that could be said about this, and I'm, I'm never going to be able to say all of it. So I'm just going to say the bits that are, have been impactful to me specifically this year. And the thing that's remarkable about this story, um, to me this year, is, is Mary's own assent to what happens. So we have this very significant word, this very significant phrase that she says, here I am, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. Or in other translations, let it be done to me according to your word. And in this passage, um, throughout uh, theology, this is described as Mary's fiat, her power, that she, in this moment, chooses to be a part of God's plan. She chooses to say yes. Now, of course, we could say that maybe Mary didn't have the right to say yes or no, but plenty of people throughout scripture say no to God. So um, there is a sense that we have this, we know that she, with her full will, says yes to this marvelous thing that has been told to her. And this year, I've really been dwelling on 
the both the power and the mystery of our capacity to choose. And instead of expounding on this um, abstractly, I'm going to take us straight into two works of art that are kind of helping me meditate on this passage itself. And I want to start with a remarkable image by an artist named Henry Asawa Tanner. So this image is called the Annunciation, and it depicts this passage. And it was painted in 1898. Now, what I think is helpful to know is that throughout um, history, throughout art history, often this um, there's kind of different ways that this can be depicted. Often the Annunciation um, has Mary being this very kind of angelic figure. She has a halo. She she has a kind of a somber air around her. Often there's a book and there's this kind of all these indications that she's learned, that she's holy, that she's um, ready to say yes to this. But um, also a Tanner's image is really um, striking and, and kind of different. I'll try to describe it for you verbally. I'll do what the Greeks would call ekphrasis. Um, describing something with my words, but you really should go look up this image later. So Annunciation by Tanner. Um, I'm pulling it up on my screen so I can describe it for you. This image has, um, it's in a stone room with two arches. Um, there's kind of stone floor. There's a rough carpet on the floor and it, it shows a bed with a young girl sitting on a bed with a red curtain behind her. And uh, it's a very simple room. Uh, it's very warmly lit, and the reason it's warmly lit is because our eyes are focused on this pillar of light, which is meant to be the angel Gabriel. And and then the young girl is looking at the pillar of light, um, which in this otherwise very kind of beautifully lit, beautiful colors of green and red and yellow, but very simple room. And she's clothed very simply and very kind of humbly. And this is notable because it's quite different from some of the other depictions of the Annunciation. It doesn't have kind of the grandeur. I mean, it does actually have a grandeur, I think, in, it, in itself, but it doesn't have the solemnity or the formality of many of the other depictions of the Annunciation. Um, and also, notably, Mary is quite young. So um, the words that are kind of used to describe her, uh, I often find it slightly we can find it off-putting in our modern world to hear Mary described as a virgin, but really that word just meant she was a young girl. So probably um, being engaged, she would have been a young teenager. That would have been the normal age to be engaged at that, at that time. And so this picture actually depicts her as that age. She looks like a girl who's maybe 15, 14 or 15. And, um, and she's looking up at this light with this very kind of interesting expression. Her hands are folded, almost as though she's praying. Uh, she doesn't look fearful. She looks kind of curious. And I like wondering, at what point in the conversation is this image um, taking place? Is At what point are we capturing it? And in my mind, um, you could imagine that the angel had just beamed in at this very moment when we see this image. But you could also kind of imagine that this was in the middle of their conversation. And the curiosity on her face with his very open eyes, fully facing the um, angel, this kind of humble posture. I like to imagine that she might be kind of just about to say, but how can this be? And the thing that's really striking, if you read this passage next to the previous passage, which describes um, her uncle having a, the vision of the same angel who tells him that his wife is going to be pregnant. And they, they answer very differently. So 
Her uncle, who's a priest in the temple, says, basically, well, that can't be my, my wife is old. Whereas Mary asks, how will this be? There's this sense that she kind of implicitly trusts what the angel says, and she's just curious. She doesn't quite understand. Um, but this image is very, it's very striking. And there's something about her, her posture and her, her expression that's so engaging because it's not terrified, but neither is it kind of falsely pious looking. She, she looks with genuine curiosity at this, at this kind of pillar of light. Now it's fun to know kind of the background of this painting. Um, and Henry Oswa Tanner is an artist I've become really interested in the last year. So I did a project in one of his other paintings um, for something I was writing. And he's an interesting figure. Uh, he's perhaps, uh, it's hard to know which image he's most famous for. This is one of the images he's most famous for, but he's also famous for the image of the banjo lesson, which has um, a grandfather with his grandson on his knee teaching him how to play the banjo. Henry Oswa Tanner was the kind of first really celebrated, well-known African-American artist in, in North America. And he, uh, he was educated at Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Art and was the only black student there at that time. I think that was in the 1870s. He was the child of uh, a very passionate African Methodist Episcopal Church minister. And his father encouraged his artistic career, but he always wanted Tanner to paint religious subjects. And most of his, his artistry kind of focuses on biblical and religious subjects. This was encouraged further by the fact that um, Tanner was sponsored on several trips to Israel uh, by Rodman Wanamaker, who is the son of John Wanamaker, who, um, if you did this bit of history, uh, I remember listening to a Your Story Hour about him. Uh, Wanamaker was one of the first kind of businessmen to create um, department stores, um, which I think were eventually bought out by J.C. Penney. And his son, uh, Rodman Wanamaker, was a huge kind of sponsor of liturgical art. So he, he, he paid for and was a patron for um, beautiful art uh, in windows, in visual art, and uh, I think possibly even in music. And one of the people that he sponsored particularly was Henry Oswo Tanner. So he, he paid for him to go on several trips to Israel. And Tanner was really influenced by these, by these trips, because he said there was something kind of very unique, very startling to him about being in the places where the biblical stories would have taken place. And the thing that he was struck by was both the, this, he, it was, he was struck by a sense of continuity. Whenever he would be in, in Jerusalem, he had this sense that it was on the one hand, thousands of years separated from, from the time of Christ, but that in some ways he felt that there was this continuity that you still could imagine what it was like to be there. There were some things that were unchanged. And so in his paintings, he tried to be really authentic to not just kind of the European ideal of what, um, you know, the enunciation or various biblical themes would be, but to really capture the reality and the kind of grit of the place that he was experiencing. And you can really see that in, in this image because it's this very vivid human, um, it, it, it's, it's an image of someone you can imagine um, as being real life. You don't just feel this is kind of a, pi a, a pious rendering of Mary to the extent that we can't imagine her as a human. Um, while at the same time being this incredibly arresting and enchanting image. Now I think the thing that's wonderful about that is it, it kind of pulls us back into that question of 
What was it like for Mary to receive this annunciation and as a human being like you and me say yes? Now, Mary is often called um, the first Christian because she was the first one to literally bear Christ in her body. Um, and that is, you know, that's that's what it is to be a Christian is to respond with faith to God and then to bear be a Christ bearer, to be a Christ one. And she was the very first person to do that, to hear the word of the Lord, to say yes to it, and then to bear Christ within her. And because of that, she's kind of this picture of what it looks like when the human will, which is so easily willing to err, says yes to, to God's will. Um, and that can sound very heady and large and distant. But what this painting does for me is it brings us down to the a picture of, of, of an actual human being, of what it would look like for an actual human being, a young girl, to see the glory of God, to ask questions out of curiosity. And that to have questions and have curiosities to say, how can it be, is not doubt or lack of faith. It's actually an implicit faith because it's this kind of resting in relationship. Now I want to pivot now to reading you the poem um, that has really stuck with me and that continues this kind of question of helping us think about the wonder that was presented to Mary, that's presented to us, and what it means to choose. Um, not in some distant pious way, but to see Mary as this picture of an actual human being who said yes to God. And to do that, we're going to read a poem by um, Denise Levertov. Denise Levertov is a really interesting poet who I've just been getting into in the last few years. Um, and I really, I should say getting into, I want to get into her more because I've loved every poem I've found by her so far. Um, she's a really interesting character. She grew up in England in the uh, 20th century. Her father was a Hasidic Jew, a Hasidic Russian Jew who moved to England converted to Christianity and became an Anglican priest, which is quite, quite a journey. And because of that, she kind of grew up with this knowledge of Judaism and mysticism and Christianity. Um, but she grew up kind of with that in her bones, both the, both the legacy of Christianity and the legacy of, of Jewish practice and the Hebrew Bible. Um, but she, she had many kind of religious meanderings and actually, um, really, kind of dedicated her faith in a more specific way in 1984, just 10 years, about 10 years before she died, uh, when she became Roman Catholic. Um, but sure, her poetry centers very much around, often around these kind of religious and spiritual themes, um, dwelling on it, and again, this kind of way that brings it down to the human experience in a way that I really appreciate. But because a lot of her life was kind of in this wondering mode, um, she didn't, she often wrote in a way that you didn't feel like you were reading religious poetry. You felt like you were reading poetry by someone who was a human trying to figure out life and therefore found themselves stumbling into scripture and into Christianity. So I want to read this poem called Annunciation by Denise Levertov um, and ponder it together about the power of choice and the mystery of choice. We know the scene, the room variously furnished, almost always a lectern, a book, always the tall lily, arrived on solemn grandeur of great wings, the angelic ambassador standing or hovering, whom she acknowledges a guest. But we are told of meek obedience. No one mentions courage. The engendering spirit did not enter her without consent. God waited 
She was free to accept or to refuse, choice integral to humanness. Aren't there enunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies, enact them in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often, those moments when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or woman are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair, and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close. The pathway vanishes. She had been a child who played, ate, slept like any other child, but unlike others, wept only for pity, laughed in joy, not triumph. Compassion and intelligence fused in her, indivisible, called to a destiny more momentous than any in all of time. She did not quail, only asked a simple, how can this be? And gravely, courteously, took heart, the angel's reply. The astounding ministry she was offered, to bear in her womb infinite weight and lightness to carry in hidden, finite inwardness nine months of eternity, to contain in slender vase of being the sum of power, in narrow flesh the sum of light, then to bring to birth, to push out into air a man-child needing, like any other, milk and love, but who was God. This was the moment no one speaks of, when she could still refuse, a breath unbreathed, spirit suspended, waiting. She did not cry, I cannot, I am not worthy, nor I have not the strength. She did not submit with gritted teeth, raging, coerced, bravest of all humans. Consent illumined her. The room filled with its light, the lily glowed in it, and the iridescent wings. Consent courage unparalleled, opened her utterly. Mm. It's just such a beautiful poem. And beautiful doesn't even begin to get to it, because to me, more than being beautiful, it's essential. It kind of describes both the particularity of Mary's story, but also something that is echoed in all of our own stories. What she captures so well in this, in a way that I think is similar to Henry Osawa's um, painting is this sense of both Mary's choice, that she said yes, that she asked questions, um, and also the grandeur and the lack of ability to understand what that could mean. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about this year. As I've come to the end of my PhD and have been making all kinds of choices about jobs and life and relationships and career, I've been really struck by the, the power of our choices and also the mystery of them. The sense that what you say yes to, what you say no to, what you take on, who you take on, really does shape your life, really does shape the course of things, and not just your life, but other people. Um, so, so when we come up to those moments of yes or no, of be it done to me according to your will, our willingness to say yes or no really does matter, really does have an impact. But at the same time, we can never know exactly what those yeses will mean. 
Everybody gets so upset around this time of year about the song, Mary, Did You Know? <laughs> I wrote an article for Christianity Today a few years ago about this because people always go, yes, of course Mary knew. She read scripture. She knew, you know, she, she obviously knew because the angel told her um, that Jesus would be her son. But I think that there's something in that song that's actually quite insightful, which is that even if Mary said yes, knowing to some extent what she was saying yes to, she couldn't know everything. There is a power in choice, but also a mystery in it. When you say yes to marrying someone, you you hopefully say yes knowing what you're saying yes to, right? If, if you didn't know what you're saying yes to, then that's grounds for annulment, right? If you came under false pretenses, um, then, then you aren't really making a promise that can be kept. But anyone you would ever talk to who has said yes to marriage knows that they didn't really know what that yes would mean. And the same with, with anything. I think saying yes to a PhD, I knew it would be hard, but I didn't know that the contours of what being hard would mean or what being satisfying would mean. And I think that that's what we see in this kind of image that, that, um, that Denise is painting for us with her words, which is this sense that Mary's yes, A, was really essential. You know, the, the angel comes and tells her all these things, but they don't just happen. We know that she says yes to it, and then they happen. She's, she's not already pregnant when she says yes. Um, there's this sense that it unfolds. And so her choice mattered, but also choosing something is inevitably opening yourself to a, a destiny, a future that's unfolded that you can't see. And so even while we value the capacity to choose, the capacity to choose is inherently tied up with faith inherently tied up with our faith in the knowledge that we have about the future and the trust that the choice we made is a good one and faith that whatever we are saying yes to will be something that was worth saying yes to and that's something I've really been meditating on in my own life I think sometimes I'm a very assertive person I can think that choosing I can I can really latch onto the agency without recognizing also, that that agency is worth nothing if we don't have the faith to embrace the mystery that saying yes to life is. And I love that she captures this in this end of the poem, this kind of tension between Mary saying yes, um, but also it not being this kind of tight-fisted thing, but that it had to be open because that's what it is to choose and have faith. She, she both didn't say, I cannot, I'm not worthy, or I don't have the strength. But neither did she submit with gritted teeth, raging and coerced. There's this sense that in her yes, there's this lightness, this openness. It opened her utterly. And to be opened is actually to, to trust, to be, to be faith-filled, to, to not be afraid, to release. And she connects this so beautifully to our own lives in a way that is, I, I never forget. I think of this passage often when she says, you know, aren't there enunciations of one sort or another in most lives? And then she says, more often those moments when roads of light and storm open for darkness in a man or woman, they're turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, or in despair with relief. Ordinary lives continue and God does not smite them. But the gates close, the pathway vanishes. That's such a haunting line to me because I know there have been moments in my life where I've maybe made wrong choices, but the idea that God doesn't smite us for our wrong choices, he's merciful, he loves us, but that 
there really is something lost when we, when we don't have that courage of Mary. So this is something I've just been dwelling on and I think is worth dwelling on. I don't know that I have a, a perfectly queued up answer to it all, um, except to say that I hope you'll meditate on these, on these images, on this story with me. And to think about what are the enunciations in your own life? What are the things that are being, what have angels come to tell you is going to pass in your life? And how are you reacting to it? Are you able to say to whatever life presents you, that's fine, be done to me according to your will. Are you, are you the one who's raging and coerced? Or are you the one who says, I cannot worthy, I cannot, I'm not worthy. And to think about what does it mean to, in our own lives, with whatever decisions or burdens or crosses that are born to us, what does it look like to be like Mary, to both know the power of our choice, but to let that choice not be a kind of white-knuckled thing, but an, an opening thing, to be opened utterly, to be vulnerable and open to life. And I guess that kind of gets back to what I was talking about at the beginning with Advent, which is that Advent is, in a way, it's a season of vulnerability. It's a season where the thing we're waiting for hasn't happened yet. And I'm really bad at waiting. Um, but it is good, and I know that the best things come when we don't try to control things and we don't try to manipulate things, but we let the story unfold before us, knowing that our choices matter, but also that we have to have faith. We have to wait. We have to let consent illumine and open us, not just be kind of a way that we try to control things. So that was much deeper than I intended this podcast to be. Um, but I would love to know uh, what works of art are, are inspiring you this Advent. And uh, if you do have a look at this image, I would love to know what you think of it. And um, I think I'm trying to I'm trying to myself memorize this poem. So I'd love to know if any of you all um, would take up that um, endeavor with me as well. All right, that's all for the night. Um, this will be our last Advent episode um, for this season because it's all that I have in me and because I have lots of other interesting episodes to share with you all. This, this Thursday, I'm going to be posting a conversation I had with my lovely sister, Sarah, about how to read really long books. Uh, it's lovely to be back with you all, and I look forward to talking soon. Thank you for listening to Speaking with Joy. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, I would highly suggest that you subscribe, leave a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to tell a friend about it. I should also mention that I have a book coming out in February called Aggressively Happy, The Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And if you order it in the next month at my publisher's website, Bethany House Publishers, you can get it for 30% off. So you might want to consider getting a pre-Christmas present for yourself or one of your friends. I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of Speaking with Joy.